and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. And I'm Jeffrey Smith, that's Jeffrey with an E-R-Y, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. Today is the finale of our series of podcasts. We're going to go into chapter 22, which we hope will help um, recap uh, what we have learned so far in the previous 21 chapters, uh, as well as uh, clarify the work that we do in the therapy room. This podcast is a companion to chapter 22 in the book, which is the last chapter of the book. And it's titled Going Forward. So Dr. Smith, after 21 chapters of going into the depth of of psychotherapy, you write in chapter 22 that the field of psychotherapy is at a very exciting stage. Um, full of new scientific knowledge uh, that is developing, that is also pushing us out of our silos toward a more universal understanding of psychology. Could you tell us a little bit more what you mean by that, pushing us out of our silos? Yes, very much. Uh, The the theme of this chapter is really how the affect avoidance model helps to understand the infrastructure that's common to all psychotherapies. And by understanding the common underpinnings, then we can begin to see all of the different therapies with their different explanations and things in the same basket. So we don't have to specialize or, or choose one or another. And we can, we can see the whole field of psychotherapy as a vast repository of, of knowledge and techniques and approaches to accomplish the same few things that, that all therapies do. And, and a lot of this, the scientific basis is really has come since the beginning of the 21st century, as we've understood better, had a, a more modern picture of the mind, both the instinctive unconscious part of it, the, the non-conscious problem solver, as, as we've called it in, in the book, and the part that we're so, so aware of, the, the conscious part. So this book is really about establishing a common framework, and in doing that, bridging the gaps between different brands of of psychotherapy. And it has something to offer for, um, or to new therapists, as well as seasoned ones, researchers, teachers, and the field in general. And you begin chapter 22 with um, a list of uh, considerations that new therapists should keep in mind. Mm -hmm. You know, in this chapter, we just made a a kind of a step-by-step, how does one approach a new case? And so I I just outlined some steps, starting with asking yourself, what is point A? Point A is where we start from, where our client comes with some sort of, of distress or dysfunction, something that's not working some pattern that's not working the way they'd like it to in their life. And we need to first get a, get a feel for exactly what that might be. And 
some of that is is just what the person tells us and some of it comes from what we already know about how people work so that's point a their strengths and their weaknesses right mm -hmm. yes and then we go to point b what is point b so point b is is where we'd all like to get to and again sometimes therapists might have a have more of an idea of what's possible, of how good things could get. And sometimes the, the client does. And also we need to take into account another participant, which is the inner child, who also may have goals and ideas of, of what needs to happen. And so that's how we, we take a look at point B and, and form some, some beginning idea. Now, sometimes therapists are reticent about passing judgment no, this is this is good, and that's better than than something else. Ultimately, though, it's the client who has to make those judgments, and we can make suggestions, we can point out directions, but it's our client who has to really find that that where point B is 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 definitely uh, more satisfying than than we started. Right, but with regard to passing judgment, and and I do know that a lot of my colleagues uh, are concerned about that as are uh, many of my patients, they hesitate to, to share what's not working in their lives because they're afraid of being judged. But it seems to me that judgment in the therapy room is not so much a question of moral value, moral standing, but rather of efficacy. Mm -hmm. how, how is this working for you? How, how well is your life functioning or how are you functioning in your life? Right. And that it's that kind of judgment, not, not one where we judge the basic humanity of that person. Absolutely. And, and furthermore, with those kinds of non-moral uh, judgments, we need to hold them with a light touch and be ready to be wrong, be ready to be corrected. And you know that's really a basic, a basic stance of anybody who's more interested in the truth and, and in success than they are in being right. Right, the difference between true curiosity and presumption. You got it. Right. So basically what we're talking about then is understanding the forces that stand in the way of progress from point A to point B. That's right, because when people come to us for help, it's because they, whatever friends and family, their own thinking and so on, have not been enough to resolve this problem. So that means that the problems that psychotherapy helps with are necessarily problems that are entrenched, that have some kind of resistance to change. And so the third thing that we want to assess at the beginning is, is what are the things that stand in the way of change? What, what is making this difficult? And we know that, that the mind often sees entrenched dysfunctional patterns as protections. And so if we as therapists are proposing to take away somebody's protection, well, the non-conscious problem solver is gonna say, uh-oh, this doesn't sound too good to me and is going to figure out how best to resist those changes. So knowing the changes that need to take place and the sources of resistance, we can now hone in on just what change processes are going to be the most accessible ones. And so then that kind of refers or it takes us back to the modular approach mm -hmm. that you described in the earlier chapters of the book. Mm -hmm. Right. Entrenched dysfunctional patterns, you'll remember from reading from earlier podcasts, 
are organized in layers and we work with the most accessible ones first. And I like to draw a diagram on the blackboard or when I'm, when I'm teaching people that has point A on the left, point B on the right, and whatever the resistance is, whatever the difficulty uh, is in the middle. And if anybody's taken an elementary physics course, they know that going from one place to another through a resistance is the definition of work. So that's the work that we're going to do. And as you say, we're then going to be asking ourselves what change processes will be involved and then what kinds of change mechanisms are going to allow us to make that process happen. And just as a, as a reminder, one of the big themes of the book is that with any entrenched dysfunctional pattern, we're either going to approach the toxic emotion that triggered it in the first place, or we're going to, to approach the behavior that's, that is helping that person avoid the feeling. So what comes first is either, either a difficult feeling or it may be some pattern of avoidance. Like um, in, in an example of trauma, it might be that the person has access right away to painful feelings having to do with the trauma and that we can work with them to help them with those feelings. Or it may be that there's a layer like uh, substance abuse or some other kind of avoidance activity that prevents them from being aware of the feelings. And so then we're gonna to have to work with the behavior um, or, or sometimes ideas that block a feeling. Ideas like it's my fault when it really wasn't. Right, so, so as therapists, we have to select the therapeutic tools necessary to construct a framework around mm -hmm. our patient and, and the treatment plan. Right, and that's where having access to tools from, from different brands of therapy can be very beneficial and, and helpful. And it's, it's good to be able to, to learn different, uh, different approaches. So, and so then this is where uh, I think this book is, is really interesting because um, you are not dogmatic in your therapeutic approach. To the contrary, you encourage a multiplicity of therapeutic approaches and, and schools, therapeutic schools of thought. But before we get into that, you, you do say something about the field of psychotherapy and how it is best learned experientially. And could you, could you just tell us a little bit about that before we go into the diversity of models? I do. Um, I, I just want to mention one other thing in, in terms of those kinds of steps for the early therapist is never to forget that, that the Swiss army knife of psychotherapy is the relationship. Right. Relationship is it, it helps with every aspect of therapy and constantly needs to be uh, nurtured, watched, uh, taken care of and, and treated as one of our most valuable ways to connect with our clients. Yes, you know, this this book has a lot of information in it, uh, but it's not enough to learn therapy. One needs experience and experience is vastly enhanced by talking to other people, talking to peers, talking to supervisors, talking to teachers, and getting a wide range of, of ideas so that, that it helps to identify exactly what's happening. I'm thinking of a therapist that I supervised at one time, and 
who was struggling in her sessions. And what came clear just from, from talking was simply that she was trying too hard. Mm. She felt too much of an obligation that she had to produce results right then and there. And because she was trying too hard, then her efforts weren't working. It weren't, wasn't hitting the mark. That's not in the book. That's something that you have to share with, with somebody else who has a different point of view and can, can help you realize that that's what's going on. So that's a nice example of something where just learning techniques is not enough. Right. And it, this reminds me of what one of my supervisors once said to me in the beginning of my career, which is, don't just do something, Amelie, sit there. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, you know, and, and, that, and that was helpful to you. Uh, one of the ones that stuck with me from my very beginning um, as a therapist was the supervisor who said, go ahead, mix it up with the patient. And those you know, I was too intellectual and too kind of wrapped up in ideas, as you would expect from, from the way I, I think. And I needed to just, you know, roll up my sleeves and, and dig in. So different people require, have different things that they need to realize about themselves. Yes. And so then for the seasoned practitioner, what does a seasoned practitioner have to realize about him or herself? Well, today, most people who've learned to be therapists and have experience got there through, through one primary school. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But because of that, we hope that this, this course, this book, um, this series of podcasts really provides uh, therapists who've learned from one school with ways to bridge over to the techniques that they haven't dared to, to adopt from other schools especially there's, there's been this huge divide between cognitive therapy and psychodynamic therapy. And you know, in the book, we've, we've seen how we can help cognitive therapists understand the role of emotion as the trigger for dysfunctional thinking. And the reason that it pops up out of the, from the non-conscious uh, problem solver. And so Cognitive therapists really need a way to incorporate emotion to understand how emotion relates to irrational thinking. And, and on the other hand, something I've noticed from my own background, where I came from a mostly psychodynamic perspective, I really wasn't taught to appreciate fully the importance of behavior, of how behaviors can block emotion and can block emotional issues from being addressed. And until the behavior changes, nothing is going to happen. You can sit and ask for free associations all day long, and you're not going to get anything that's really helpful. And then there are third wave therapies like emotion-focused therapy and DBT and things like that. And those are very compatible with the kinds of concepts that we've, uh, that we've discussed here. Uh, but what they often miss is those are focused very much on early automatic nonverbal schemas and trauma and things like that. And Dr. Freud wasn't wrong when he talked about the Oedipus complex. There are kinds of problems that come out of a, a later developmental level, age four and five and so on, and involve ideas. And those kinds of developmental uh, developmentally more advanced problems are something that third wave therapists need to learn about as well. Those are part of our 
catalog of, of different kinds of EDPs. So there's something for everybody to learn here, but most of all, a way for people with whatever their background might be to be able to bridge over more comfortably and easily to techniques that they may not have learned in the first place. Right, to be perhaps more nimble with the way that our patients organize their own experiences, be it intellectually, cognitively, emotionally, or behaviorally. And I would dare say also that the physiology of trauma, for instance, the physiology or the physiological organization of information in preverbal schemas is also a really um, new and dynamic field that people are entering into. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yep. So what about uh, the knowledge seekers and researchers? How is this book useful to them? Well, I, I think one of the main things here is to realize that we really have a problem with diagnosis because in the early days, nobody knew that there was any difference between things that were more genetic or more biological versus things that had to do with the mind and the way we think and, and understand our world. And so the diagnostic manuals that are in use now really don't differentiate between different kinds of problems. And in particular, psychotherapy helps with the way people respond to situations. For example, the way they respond to anxiety we don't try with psychotherapy to take away somebody's predisposition to be more anxious than the next person, but we certainly are going to try to help them in how they respond to those anxious feelings that they get and how they deal with them. So this book is really built on looking at the kinds of problems that are specifically addressable in psychotherapy. And I think that's a, that's a big help for research because research tends to have been done on the, the official diagnostic lines, which are usually a mishmash mix of biological factors and mental factors, things that have to do with the thinking and the calculations that go on in, in the mind. So we hope to bring some clarity to that with the concept of the entrenched uh, dysfunctional or maladaptive pattern and then from the point of view of diagnosis, we also have a problem in the, the different orientations of psychotherapy because each one has a completely different and incompatible idea of what the problems are that they help with that are defined in terms that belong to that school. And so that creates a real problem because People who come from a psychodynamic point of view think that we're going to help people with intrapsychic conflicts and their CBT colleagues have no idea what that means. And, and so again, we're, we're offering with this, with the affect avoidance model, a way to bridge across those, those gaps. Right. So that everybody's going to think that, or that the psychodynamic person is going to think that all patients are a nail. Right. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Yes. Uh, so what are some specific questions for investigation that, that uh, you find uh, particularly interesting and tantalizing? Yeah, well, well the, the affect avoidance hypothesis or the affect avoidance model really is not 100% nailed down scientifically. It certainly seems to be leaning that way that what triggers problem patterns and entrenched uh, dysfunctional patterns is emotion emotion of some negative type. 
And some of those emotions are deep down non-conscious emotions that our instinctive mind detects and that, that trigger maladaptive patterns. And some of them are conscious. We, we all know that if we have a, an uncomfortable feeling, we want to do something to get rid of it. And so, so it's a very broad and, and practical way of looking at what triggers problems and how resolving those deep down emotions or those problematic emotions is ultimately the way to solve problems to make it unnecessary to do those maladaptive dysfunctional behaviors. So we still are awaiting a broader validation that that concept uh, is in fact is in fact true across the board. And one area where it may not always be true is that it looks like sometimes, pretty rarely, but sometimes maladaptive patterns happen as a result of seeking pleasure rather than seeking to avoid pain. But that's an area. And another area that's of particular interest to me for further scientific evaluation is the area of values and attitudes that are internalized. The things that give us feelings of pride when we do what our conscience says we should and guilt and shame when we don't. And I believe those things are quite distinct from other mental contents like likes and dislikes. You don't feel pride about the fact that you like strawberry ice cream, but you feel proud about the fact that you value honesty, let's say. And I think those are very different and that the values are much harder to change than likes and dislikes and, and mental contents like that. And yes. generally- Because they're culturally entrenched. They are. And I think that the mind has ways of holding on to our values very tightly and when the conscience is wrong, like when people have low self-esteem as a result of early life trauma, that's a very, very hard thing to change. And I think that hasn't been investigated significantly from a scientific standpoint. And that's one place where, where our thinking would, would lead to a good deal of interesting scientific research. So you, you state in your section for students and teachers that Psychotherapy has been organized and taught and practiced like the intellectual pursuits of the Middle Ages, which is uh, kind of a provocative phrase. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, not only the Middle Ages, but actually the Greeks invented it. They had, you know, schools of philosophy in Athens, and each school was had a kind of a guru or a genius person at the center of it who had come up with some very important insights. And, and then gathered disciples, and then they go to war with, uh, with the rival schools and emphasize not their similarities, but their differences. Well, unfortunately, schools of psychotherapy tend to be like that to this day, where they are in competition with each other and emphasize their differences. And as, as they go a few generations beyond the original founder, then the disciples tend to get more rigid and, and more involved in trying to proselytize their beliefs. Well, all of that happens when you're building your intellectual edifice on conjecture, where one, I, one person's brilliant insight has just as much value as the next, and nobody knows which one is correct or, or whether they're both correct. And so it's only when we begin to have some some more scientific basis 
to look at what's really going on, do we begin to be able to see through the fog of these warring camps? And that's what the affect avoidance model is really talking about the infrastructure that's common to all of the camps that exist today. And so by clarifying that and going back to a modern understanding of how the mind stores patterns of information, how evolution has formed the non-conscious problem solver for the purpose of survival and procreation, and how the very few mechanisms by which patterns that are stored in memory can actually be changed. And that new scientific understanding allows us to begin to see the, the common infrastructure. And, and that's, that's what this book is really about. So then we're led to learn about the neurological basis of, of behavior and entrenched dysfunctional patterns, mm -hmm. extinction, reconsolidation, and our scientific, our developing scientific understanding of these will move us out of the Middle Ages. Right. And, and how does it influence today's teaching model? Well, teaching really grows right out of the, the schools of the, of the Greeks and the Middle Ages and, and today where, where students of psychotherapy are expected far before they have any knowledge of, of the field or any experience, they're expected to choose one school over another and study that one and become a disciple of that school and in doing so, you make a, a really enormous investment of time and energy on learning this one approach to psychotherapy, which is going to be fine for certain kinds of problems, but not work for other ones. And so it's extremely inefficient and even tends to produce a kind of rigidity where the person who says, well, I, I only approach things this way and I don't do all of that stuff. Is, is then crippled, uh, handicapped when it comes to dealing with things that are better approached from another angle. And for them to learn to do something differently, they may have to start from scratch and learn a whole different set of theories and techniques and, and a whole nother school of therapy. Well, that's extremely inefficient. And most people don't do it. They just keep on using whatever they learned in the first place. So it's really unfortunate and inefficient. And what we're hoping with our non-denominational approach is to give people the tools to learn in such a way that they can make sense of whatever school they're reading about or they're hearing about and can adopt techniques from that and use them in a coherent and goal-directed way to produce better results. So we're hoping with the book and the affect avoidance model and the series of podcasts, to, to help people learn a more universal approach from the very beginning so that they can then incorporate, without fear, incorporate other uh, kinds of techniques and ideas. And in particular, I think it's worth saying that we are not challenging. This is not a rival school that we're talking about. In this non-denominal approach, we're embracing all of the schools and all of the wonderful things that they've learned and just providing some tools by which it makes it easier to pick and choose. Kind of like the Unitarian Church of Psychotherapy. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and the reason we use that word non-denominational, which really comes from a religious context, is exactly that. It's because these schools have way too much of a religious flavor to them. Right, right. 
So lastly, as, as we're coming to really to the end of this chapter and the book, you make an urgent appeal in your section titled, We Can't Afford to Waste Resources. Uh, yes, it, not too long ago, I read an important statistic, and that was that between 2010 and 2030, the middle class population of the world is expected to double. And that's just phenomenal. Now, obviously, that's not going to be in Western Europe or the United States or, or North America. That's in the world as a whole. And it mostly is because many, many people are going to be moving from having their main concern be survival to their main concern being the quality of their lives and how well they're raising their children and what kind of happiness they can find and so on. And along with that, we're seeing a tremendous interest in psychotherapy throughout the world. And the teaching of psychotherapy in many parts of the world is quite rudimentary. And so one of the aims of this book is to provide an intellectual framework and an approach to learning psychotherapy that would be useful for people who have limited access to um, to sophisticated schools and prolonged training programs and so on, because there's a going to be an increasing need. And at the same time, to fulfill this need, if we're trying to do it by what's currently done, where practitioners from a certain school will go and develop a, a following in uh, in China, for example, and go and teach a three-week three intensive course in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, well, people are going to learn a little bit from that, but they really need more. That's not going to be enough, and it's too restricted, and it's inefficient. So we're hoping to provide some basis and hoping that this grows as, as a way for people who have only limited resources for learning to have access to a more sophisticated and broader approach to psychotherapy. So as the world population moves up Maslow's hierarchy of needs and begins to address the question of personal development and uh, self-fulfillment, then there will be a greater need for psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. yep. And should all step forward and become more nimble. Yes. And, and it, we promised in our last uh, podcast to provide the cherry on top. So the cherry on top is really that this series of podcasts and the book that they're based on is not just a, a technique, a way of, of doing psychotherapy and understanding what's going on. It's, it's really the embodiment of a more universal approach to understanding psychotherapy and understanding how, how people have problems and, what, and how they can change, how psychotherapy actually works. So that's the cherry on top is that having gone through this series of podcasts, you now have access to a, a much more universal, broad-based and scientifically um, coherent approach to people's problems and how to help them. Good, well, it's a little sad for me to have to say that this concludes today's podcast and the series of podcasts. Um, and I want to thank everybody for listening to the end. We hope this series has been helpful to you. 
and we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists that will help uh, you to continue developing uh, your skill set. Um, Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? Uh, well, uh, yes, I, I would. So in particular, today is my 75th birthday. <gasps> Happy birthday. Thank you. And I think what I'd like to do with that is to uh, let everybody know that you can continue to learn and grow. And that's what's so, so wonderful about psychotherapy is the human mind is so complicated that it's never boring. Every case is different and you never get jaded and never have to stop learning and always seeking to get better and to understand better and to do a better job as a therapist. Yes, this is an excellent field for lifelong learners. That's right. So, so I hope that all of our listeners enjoy um, doing therapy for many, many years to come. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and um, good luck, and goodbye. <laughs> okay. Goodbye, everybody. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye. <laughs>